alone and to fend for themselves, themselves spiritually. And Paul was concerned that being new Christians as they were, they'd cave into the pressure. The pressure of persecution and other pressures that were evident in that time period and decide that following Christ just really is not worth it. That's what his concern was. I want you to hear his concern. Just hear his pastoral heart. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. Chapter 3, verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Listen to how Paul feels. Hear how he feels about these believers, this church. Chapter 3, verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. What's he saying? I didn't think you all were going to make it. I wasn't sure if you were going to continue on in the faith. And so I, I had to send someone to see how you were doing spiritually. And that's what he did. He sent Timothy. And Timothy brought a report back and said, Paul, they're doing great. They're pressing on in the Lord in the midst of this persecution. They're fighting the good fight of faith. God is keeping them. And so Paul was very encouraged. And so seeing that God had started this work of salvation in them when Paul first shared the gospel with them, and seeing that God is continuing this work of the gospel in them and among them, Paul closes his letter to them by giving them hope that God will complete the work that he started. That's what our passage is about this morning. And he's really confident. Paul is very confident. I'm sure you can hear his confidence in chapter 5, verses 23 to 24. Just, he's absolutely sure, certain, this is going to happen. And the way he expresses his confidence is first in a prayer and then in a promise. Paul gives a confident prayer and then he gives a confident promise. That will serve as the structure for our, our passage this morning. His purpose here is to instill hope and encouragement in the hearts of these believers that God will complete the work He started. And hearing that, as these believers hear that hope that God's going to do finish what He started, that actually serves as the means by which the promise is fulfilled. When we hear as believers, God's going to keep you to the end, guess what? You're going to fight harder. You're going to fight harder against sin, against temptation. Hearing the promise is the means by which you remain secure to the end. That's his purpose here. That's what he's trying to accomplish. And that's how it works. So let's consider, first of all, this confident prayer in verse 23. It's what verse 23 is. It is a confident prayer. Let me read it again. Chapter 5, verse 23. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God do this. It's kind of a wish. It's a prayer. May He do this. Oh, that He would do though. How badly I want God to do this. God, let it happen. He's praying, earnestly praying that God would keep them saved to the end. There's several components of this prayer that I want us to consider. First, who is it that he's praying to? 
And the second, what is it that he's praying for? And then third, when is he praying it will happen? Who, what, when? So first of all, who's Paul praying to? Grammatically correct, more grammatically correct, to whom is he praying? Who's he praying to? Now you might say, oh, it's God. Of course, he's praying to God, right? That's who we pray to. We pray to God, and that's true. But did you catch how he addresses God here? What does he say? He doesn't simply say, now may God sanctify you completely. What does he say? Verse 23. Now may the God of what? Peace. Why? Why does he give God that title? God of peace. What is, how does that add to or clarify what he's trying to convey in these verses? What clarity does this bring for us that, the God, that God is a God of peace? How does that help us understand that our final salvation is secure by God and he's the God of peace? What does that have to do with anything? Here's what it has to do with us and what Paul's arguing here. The God of peace, he's called that because God is the one who has made peace with us. That's the point. Which implies at one point we were not at peace with God. He's the God of peace. He's made peace with us, which means at one point that wasn't true. Why? Isn't God peaceful towards everyone? Isn't God happy with everyone? The biblical answer is no. God has a righteous indignation towards sinners who have rejected him as their, as his supreme, as their supreme king. They've, they've broken God's law and preferred to serve and worship other false gods, the primary one they see in the mirror every day. And so God, creator, in his righteousness and in order to uphold his justice, cannot just let sinners' rebellion go unnoticed and sweep it under the rug as if it never happened. God must punish sinners. But in His kindness, God sent the One who would bear the wrath for sinners, namely Jesus. This is what I trusted in when I was 11 years old, and I trust that many of you are trusting in even now. Nothing else. You're trusting solely in the perfect life Jesus lived. The, the, the sacrifice he took on the cross, bearing the full weight of God the Father's anger against your sin. And when he rose again from the dead, after three days conquering sin and death, that's what you're trusting in alone. And that's what needed to happen in order for there to be peace between you and God. Jesus had to take the wrath. And this is what Paul says in, in chapter 1, verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians. You don't have to turn there, but he says it's Jesus who is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. What does that mean? How is that possible? Because he took the wrath upon himself already. That's why we have peace with God, and therefore can be called children of God. So Paul is praying here on behalf of this church to the God of peace, who has already made peace with this church through the death of his Son. Praying that this peace between God and sinners will continue to remain into eternity. That's what he's praying for. That's, excuse me, that's who he's praying to, the God of peace. Now, what is it that he's praying for? Notice the second part of verse 23. He's praying that this God of peace will what? Sanctify you completely. That's what he's praying for. Complete and total sanctification. What 
does that mean? The second half of the verse provides a parallel that gives us some light as to shed some light on what does it mean that God will sanctify you completely. Look at the second part of verse 23. It says, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see that you sanctify is parallel with be kept blameless. And completely corresponds to your whole spirit and soul and body. See that? He's saying the same thing in two different ways. So let's first talk about sanctify. Put differently, be kept blameless. What does that mean? This language gives us an idea that what's in Paul's mind is moral purity. It's a purity that God is going to accomplish in us. The word sanctify comes from the, the root word for holiness. And it's the verb form of this, like holify. <laughs> Gets more accurately, make holy. That's what he's doing. That's what he's praying for, that God would make us completely and entirely holy, set apart unto the Lord. And when you couple that with the word blameless, no blame. Without blemish before Jesus Christ. No blame for our sin. This gives us a picture of pure spotlessness, spotlessness before the judge of all the earth. And Paul is praying that God will present this church before Jesus in such a way that they are holy and without blame for their sin. Why? Because he's made them pure by himself. So how is this possible? I mean, think about this. If they will be made pure and spotless by God, that doesn't remove their record of sin that they've committed in this life. If they're going to be made pure and made without sin when Jesus comes back, what do you do with the life of sin? They're still going to have to give an account for the sins they committed before they're made pure, right? Those sins have to be punished, right? And Paul says they were. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 5, verse 9. Paul says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we obtain that salvation? What did Jesus do? Verse 10, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. We're not destined for this. We're not destined for wrath. We're not looking forward to wrath. As Christians, you ought not to be looking forward to wrath. As a non-Christian, that's what you're looking forward to. If you're here this morning, and if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior and repented of your sins, that's what you have awaiting you. Wrath. And so I appeal to you to repent and trust in the work of Jesus alone. And what you have looking forward to you is not wrath, but life. Now, the key phrase here in verse 9 is because of or through Jesus, through our Lord Jesus, that we are not destined for wrath because of his death on the cross. That's what the cross is all about, isn't it? Some people have a very sentimental view of the cross of Jesus, and it was not pretty. It is not a pretty thing. The cross is the place not only where Jesus was physically tormented, but spiritually. He took on the full wrath of God. Some people don't like this. 
people who claim to be Christians say, no, 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 no. Jesus, the Son of God, experiencing the Father's wrath, that sounds like divine child abuse. Have you heard anybody say that? But for those of us who are being saved, we say, no, this is our only hope. Jesus willingly took upon this wrath so that we would not have to for an eternity in hell. This is hope for us. So when Paul uses the word sanctify in verse 23, and then it's parallel of be kept blameless, he's telling us that on the day when Jesus returns, we will be cleansed from sin. Sin's penalty was broken at the cross, but when Jesus returns, sin's presence will be entirely removed. At the cross, the power and penalty of sin is not over us anymore. But we still feel its presence, don't we? And that's what we have to look forward to when Jesus returns. We will be made entirely blameless and entirely sanctified because the blame has been taken by Christ and He will make us pure on that day. So he's praying will happen. But the prayer will only be a dream and never a reality if there's still some sin that remains with us. Right? If any hint of sin remains, then we will not be blameless and sanctified before the Lord. This is why Paul uses the words like completely. And your whole soul and spirit and body, all of you, Paul's prayer is that all sin will be removed entirely on that future day. Now, don't get hung up on these words spirit and soul and body. This is not a theology here of how many parts there are to humans. The Bible teaches there are two parts, inner man and outer man, physical and spiritual. And Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, mind, and, you know, and several other things he mentioned. That doesn't mean there's four or five parts to us. This is, Paul is just simply saying, with every fiber of your being, every part of you, all aspects of you, God is going to sanctify. That's his point. Not even a hint, not even a whiff, not even a scent of the smell of the dirtiness of sin. That's amazing forward to that day this is especially amazing if you know how sinful you actually are it's not it's not all that big of a deal to you if you don't realize the weight and the reality of your own sin but if you know your sin all too well and you know how bad of a sinner you are and how bad of a sinner you're capable of being to hear these words here that he's going to sanctify you completely that's glorious it's your hope that's what you get to look forward to. That's what he's praying for. Total transformation. Now we've answered who he's praying to, the God of peace. What he's praying for, complete sanctification. Now let's ask, when is Paul praying this will happen? It's very clear at the end of verse 23. He says, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this theme of the second coming of Jesus permeates this letter of 1 Thessalonians. It's all over the place. It is a dominant theme. It's mentioned in every chapter of this book. Why does Paul pray that they'll be sanctified completely at that time? Why didn't he do it now? 
You ever wondered that? Why can't God just make me sinless now? That'd be a lot easier. Very convenient. I can worship Him fully. I mean, why, why is He letting sin... Doesn't He have the power to do that? Yeah. So why is He choosing to wait until Jesus returns? Maybe many answers could be given. Here's one. When Jesus comes back, He's going to bring with Him two things. Judgment and salvation. Judgment for those who have not been sanctified and remain in their sin and salvation for those who have been sanctified and stand blameless before Him. Here's, here's how Paul puts it in chapter 5, verse 2. You don't have to turn there. Chapter 5, verse 2, he says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you who are not in darkness, brothers... But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For we are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. point here he's making is, it's the same event. The second coming of Jesus, the same event, but two very different realities depending upon what group you're in. You have some for whom that event is judgment. That's those who are in darkness now those who are not trusting in Christ and living in their rebellion. And then that same event is salvation and sanctification for those who are in the light, those who are trusting in Christ. And Paul, fully aware of this reality, is praying, oh God, let it be that this church is among those who inherit salvation and not everlasting punishment. There's a hope. There's a dependence that we have upon the Lord now in this life as we await that day. That's why He's not making us sanctified now. We wouldn't have any need to run back to Christ. I mean, think about this. If God just sanctified us fully now, we'd just be on our own. We filled, up, filled our gas tank up and it never, never went away. It never ran out. We'd have no need to go back to the station. That's why we run to Him on a daily basis because we know our desperate need for sanctification. It is a constant prayer to the God of peace for complete removal of the presence of sin at the coming of Jesus Christ. He moves from a confident prayer to a confident promise. That prayer would be meaningless if God couldn't actually answer it. He can, and Paul is confident that he will because God is powerful enough to make it happen. But if you realize as well, God could be powerful enough to answer the prayer, but he might not feel like answering it. If he doesn't have the character to follow through with the promises he's made, what good is it if he's powerful enough to keep his promises? You've got to have the power and the integrity. Both have to be there in order for this to be a confident prayer that leads to a confident promise. And that's what Paul highlights next. He moves into this confident promise, saying, the prayer I just prayed for you all, it's going to happen. It will happen because God is powerful enough to make it happen and He's faithful enough to see to it that it will happen. 
Look at verse 24. Chapter 5, verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. As you catch how Paul refers to God now, the one who calls you, that's the title given to him. He's the one who calls you. What does that mean? Does it mean that God calls us? This is a common theme in Scripture. A reference to God's ability, specifically His ability to awaken you from your spiritual deadness. That's what calling in Scripture normally means. This is not a reference to a general call to all people to be saved. This is God's effectual calling upon someone by implanting the truth of the Gospel on their hearts so that they will respond. Reminds me of when Jesus called out Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus was not sitting in there thinking, I don't feel like I'm feeling pretty well rested right now. Maybe I'll just stay in here a few more days. You know, the call affected the response. Jesus called, and that call made it happen so that he lived and got up and walked out of the grave. That's what happens when we get saved. We would not respond to God on our own had He not first called us and awakened us from our spiritual deadness so that we could respond to Him in faith. Paul is saying, Thessalonians, God is the one who called you. He called you. Whenever a person is called by God and that person hears the Gospel, they will embrace it. God never calls someone apart from the Gospel. It's always with the Gospel. But many people hear the Gospel and don't respond. Why some? Why do some and others don't? Maybe this group is smarter or or more spiritually attuned to God or something like that. I wouldn't say that. Would you you say that you're smarter than your non-Christian neighbor who has not yet responded to the Gospel but heard the same Gospel as you? No. The difference is grace. God in his kindness he didn't have to do this but in his kindness he called you he awakened you from your spiritual deadness god is the one who called is what paul is saying what does that have to do with what we're talking about here the one who called you will keep you see the connection if god is the one who called you and brought you to himself in the first place don't you think he's going to keep you as well that's the point And that's what Paul is saying. Let me read verse 24 again. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. If He called you, He's surely going to keep you. That's what He's saying. We know what He's faithful to do is answer the prayer of verse 23. Paul prayed that they would be completely sanctified at the coming of Jesus. And Paul is saying the one who called you initially is faithful to make that happen in that day. There's no reason why, there there is a reason why Paul would draw attention to this calling. God will surely do it. The God who calls will do it. Here's how Paul puts it in Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you 
will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I'm sure of it. I'm certain that this will happen. That's the point of our text here. The God who started the work, namely called you, is the God who's going to finish the work, namely sanctify you, keep you blameless. Paul's reminding these Christians of how they were initially saved and brought into a right relationship with God as a way of giving them greater confidence in his ability to keep them saved until Jesus comes. God always finishes what he starts. Unlike, ladies, some of your husbands. They start a project, get going, they're excited about it for a little bit, kind of get bored, and then it never gets finished. Yes, I'm one of those. God's not like that. And start projects and then finish them. If you start something, he's going to take care of business and finish it. That's who God is. So Paul is drawing our attention to God's initial power to save us as a way of giving us confidence in his ability to keep us to the end. What, what good is it if God is sovereign and in control of our coming to him in faith, and not sovereign and in control of our continuing and completion of that faith. It's no good. He who calls you will surely do it. But it's not just the fact that he called you that gives you confidence that the prayer of verse 23 will be answered. It's the fact that the one who calls you has the kind of character to actually fulfill it. See that in verse 24? It's not just the one who calls you, but the one who calls you is what? He's faithful. He's faithful. So if the calling highlights his ability to do it, then the faithfulness here highlights his integrity to, to actually do what he promises to do. You've got to have both. You, you can't have one without the other. If you only have one of those, it's worthless. If God's character is totally trustworthy, but he lacks the power to carry out what he wants for us, that's not much good for us. But let's say he's completely in control and has all the power that the Bible says he has, but he lacks the character and integrity to do what he says he's going to do. It's not very good for us. Growing up, I used to play this game with my siblings. It was not a good game to play with them, but you'll see the point why that was the case in a minute. It's called the trust game. Have you ever played the trust game? The idea is that you're supposed to stand perfectly still, like a board, stiff as a board, and fall back trusting that the person behind you will catch you. Trusting both their ability and their integrity. The problem is, my siblings tended to lack one of them. Like my little sister, she didn't have the ability. She was very sweet, but I just, I just plowed right into her and we both fell on the ground. I don't know why I decided to do that, but nevertheless, those are the kind of games we played. My older brother, he was strong, but he lacked the integrity. His idea of fun was to step aside and let me fall to the ground. Why I trusted him, I don't know. But here's the thing. My dad had both. He had both the power, strong guy, and the integrity. If he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it to the best of his ability. And that's why I was willing to fall off of really high ledges, perfectly straight, right into his arms. God has both both the integrity and the power to do what he promises to do. He is both able 
and faithful. You've got to trust that. He can and he will do it. I think some of us have a hard time believing this about God. Most people, most Christians probably have an easier time believing that God is powerful, like he's powerful enough to do what he says he's going to do, but is he really faithful? Is God really faithful? I mean, look at all that I'm going through. Is it really faithful? How can God be faithful based on my life and the difficulties I've experienced? And so we tend to include, based on our experience, not God's word, we conclude he can't be faithful. He may be powerful, but for whatever reason, he's not being faithful to me. Before we come to that conclusion, we need to ask this question. To what does God promise to be faithful? What is he saying he'll be faithful to? He is faithful, but to what for you? To give you a life of ease? To give you a life of comfort? Security? Fulfill every desire that you have, every want that you've ever had? Does that mean God is faithful? Parents, you know that's not what faithfulness is. If you gave your kids everything they wanted, you would be an awful parent. Let me just say it. My kids ask me for a lot of things that I don't give them. Hopefully because I'm wanting to be faithful. That's not what faithfulness means, according to God. What He has promised is not freedom from pain or difficulty in this life. That's not what He's promised. His promise is that He will not let us fall in the midst of those difficulties. His promise is that He will keep us in relation to Him, in relationship with Him, in the midst of the pain. That's what He promises. If, indeed, He called you in the beginning, because there are some, like I mentioned in the beginning, who seemed as though they were Christians, and then they walk away. What's the reality? He never called them. They never truly bowed the knee. And we know that First John makes it very clear in chapter 2 that many were among us, but when they went out from us, they proved that they were never of us. Because if they were truly of us, they would have remained with us. God promises to keep those whom he's called. He is faithful. He is faithful to cause our faith to endure when the burden comes, when the tension rises, when the physical deterioration persists and the physical pain that just hurts to get out of bed, the emotional pain, it just, it just hurts to face the day. God's still going to give you the faith you need to sustain you through that, cause you to continue in it. He's faithful to that. I love the refrain. I think we're going to sing it here in a moment. Of great is thy faithfulness. It says this, morning by morning new mercies I see. And then notice these words. All I have what? Needed thy hand hath provided. Not all that I've wanted. Not all that I think would make me really happy. Not all that I think I need. But all that I have actually needed. God, you've provided Great is thy faithfulness. He's faithful to what he promises to give us what we most need. And what we most need, 
according to this text, is to be able to stand blameless on the day when Jesus returns. That's what you most need, whether you feel like it or not right now. That's what we most need. Listen, this is going to happen. <laughs> this is going to happen. This is not some fairy tale that Christians try to make up just to make us feel good about our present circumstances. This is going to happen. Jesus really is going to come back. And if you're in Him, if He's called you, you will stand blameless before Him because of the work He accomplished in your place. That should help you, struggling saint. Give you confidence to continue when you say, I just don't feel like I can keep going. That's just it's too hard. That should give you confidence. You can. You can keep going. Why? Because He promises to make you keep going and to carry you to the finish line. And when you hear that, you're going to keep going. That's how these promises work. You hear the promise, and the promise effects a response in you. That's the thrust of this text. This is good news. The God who removed the penalty of sin when He called you will also remove the very presence of sin when He comes for you. This is good news. But it may not be quite as good of news to us as it should be. As I alluded to earlier, one reason why this may not feel like that big of a deal to us is because we don't think our biggest problem, our greatest threat is sin. Sin's not the biggest problem in my life. My circumstances are, or this person is. And when we don't believe that our greatest threat is sin, we're not going to believe that our greatest reward is Jesus. Our, our sin becomes minimized when, when we don't see it as a threat to the greatest thing we could ever get, namely Jesus. If Jesus is our highest and greatest and final reward, then we're going to see sin as a big problem, the biggest problem there is in our lives. Whenever you see, whatever you see as the biggest problem in your life will reveal what is your greatest treasure. You see that in your life? Whatever is the, the biggest problem is going to reveal what you love the most. Problems are problems for us because they threaten to steal or keep us from getting what we most value and love and treasure. If your greatest treasure is not Jesus and being with Him forever, you will not think your greatest problem is your sin. But if you want nothing more than to be in the presence of Jesus forever, then you will hate your sin with a passion and make war on it daily, knowing that persistence in it keeps you from Christ. Hear this promise. God of peace Himself will sanctify you completely. And your whole being will be presented before the judge without blemish. Why? Because He who calls you is faithful. That becomes really good news when you see sin as a really big deal. It's encouraging. It's hopeful. Some of you know who uh, Johnny Erickson Tata is. You know who that is. Just shake your head. No? Yeah? A few of you? Johnny Erickson Tata. I would encourage you to read her, her stuff. She's had a very difficult life. She, was, uh, she became a quadriplegic as a teenager. She can't move her arms and legs in a wheelchair. For 40 years of her life, she's been that way as a result of a diving accident. Dove into a shallow, shallow water, broke her neck. 
And when she was asked on one occasion, on several occasions, but this particular occasion, what she's looking forward to most about heaven, what do you think her response was? Can you imagine what her response would be? I can't wait to stretch my arms, to get up out of this silly wheelchair and walk around and, and actually greet people and talk with my hands. I can't wait to paint, to do things that, do things that so many of us take for granted. That wasn't her response. It would have been fine. That wasn't her response. Here's what she said about what she's looking forward to in heaven. I can't wait to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Without a trace of sin, I won't be crippled by distractions, disabled by insincerity. I won't be handicapped by a ho-hum half-heartedness. I will finally be able to fellowship fully with the Father and the Son. For me, this will be the best part of heaven. Is what you're looking forward to? Most. The difficulties in this life will simply be removed and all obstacles will be removed so you can focus on Jesus fully. The promise we looked at in this passage is only true of and glorious to those who hate their sin and long to be with Jesus forever. And for you, it's a guarantee. It's a done deal. So what makes you confident that tomorrow morning you're going to wake up still a Christian? What confidence do you have that you will be able to stand before the judge of all the earth when he comes again? Your answer, if it includes anything about yourself, like I'll try hard enough, or, or maybe my, my good works will outweigh my bad works in the end, or Dare I even say, if I exercise enough of my own free will, then I can get there. Listen, if you're trusting in any of those things to keep you saved, you don't have any real hope. Your answer must be God alone. God is the one who keeps you through His Son. Here's how one person put it. I love this. If you could lose your salvation, you would. If you could, you would. In other words, if your final salvation is dependent upon you, you'd blow it. We'd all blow it. It's not. The only truth that can give us such confidence that Paul had that tomorrow we're going to wake up Christians and we'll be able to stand on the day when Jesus comes is this. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Trust that. Rest in that. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask now that you would give us the grace we need to trust in these promises. And as we hear these promises, may that secure, secure the promise. As we hear what you say you're going to do, help us to trust in not only your power, but your integrity to, to fulfill it. And we pray, Lord, I pray now for any struggling saint here who's not sure if they know you, who's not sure if they're, they're still a Christian, Lord, I pray that they would be trusting in this promise now. Nothing in themselves, but in Jesus alone. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to look not to our circumstances, but to look beyond them to one day when Jesus is going to come back and let us long for that day as we fight hard against our own sin now, repenting of it, humbling ourselves, confessing it, and seeing Jesus is better than pursuing sin. Give us such grace.
and we'll trust you along the way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.